Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Today, we have our very own faculty member, Dr. Anne-Marie Shiasan. She is a longtime friend and colleague and a very unusual combination of talents. She's a family physician. She is a shaman. She's an energy healer. And probably there are a few more you can think of. Well, there are many, many more things that she has talents in, but I want our listeners to know that we're really going to be dissecting this topic of energy medicine. What is it? When can you use it? How do you find someone who does it? And so let's welcome her. Dr. Anne-Marie Shiasan is the director of the fellowship at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine and an associate professor of medicine at the University of Arizona. Anne-Marie is triple board certified in integrative medicine, family medicine, and hospice and palliative medicine. Stimulated by a lifelong interest in the healing capacity of meditation, consciousness, and energy healing, Dr. Shiasan studied extensively with indigenous healers in Mexico. She is the author of Energy Healing, The Essentials of Self-Care, and the co-author with Dr. Andrew Weil of Self-Healing with Energy Medicine. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Thank you. So, it makes sense to begin with the question, what is energy medicine? Energy medicine is any modality that works on the energy field or the subtle field of the body. The concept is that there's an energy body that really is housed within the physical body. Many, many traditions work with this. Traditional Chinese medicine is rooted in this. Ayurvedic medicine is rooted in this. Hands-on healing is rooted in this. Energy healers would tell you that everything's energy. And right now, when people talk about energy medicine, they're mostly talking about hands-on healing or distance healing. You know, uh, scientific medicine, conventional medicine, does not recognize subtle energies. We certainly use forms of energy in conventional medicine, everything from diathermy to x-rays, and we measure EEGs and EKGs. But the whole concept of subtle energy just doesn't compute with the dominant scientific paradigm. So it's very unusual to find a medical doctor, a highly trained medical doctor who works in this area. That begs the question for both of you. How did you get interested? Because uh, Andy, you've also had a longstanding interest in this area. But first, Anne-Marie, how did you get interested? I started getting interested as a kid, working on my grandmother. And then I took a course when I was working as an infectious disease epidemiologist. So I trained in energy healing before I went to medical school. So during medical school, I would scan my patients. And then I'd run down and look at the x-ray and see whether or not I could find a correlation. And I could. So I couldn't make the exact diagnosis, but I could tell which part of the body where the issue was most often. And you, Andy, how did you get interested? Well, I think in the 1970s, when I was traveling around and looking at other kinds of healing practices, I met a number of energy healers, listened to what they had to say, had them work on me. Sometimes I felt nothing from them. You know, sometimes I saw effects. I had a discussion group for medical students at the University of Arizona in the 1980s, and there was a PhD nursing student here who was doing her thesis on a controlled study of therapeutic touch for pain relief. And I had her come in and present to the group. It was very impressive. She had us learn how to feel energy first by rubbing palms together and then separating the hands and with the eyes closed, see if you could 
feel something. But then she did an amazing experiment. She had us pair up at one person facing the other. And one person was the receiver who held their palms out like this. And the other person was the sender who held their palms over them, not touching. Uh, and then with eyes closed, the sender was instructed to send energy through one hand. And when the receiver felt it, they were to tap that hand. And I would say within 10 minutes, there was a 90% accuracy rate in that group. That was very impressive to me. Andy, the only technique I know like that is a child's game where you hold your hand out and the other person has their hands <laughs> on top and you're supposed to slap yeah, it. <laughs> don't, didn't do that here. <laughs> so why do you think there is this resistance to the subject of subtle energies in conventional medicine when clearly we recognize that energetic therapies, as you mentioned earlier, do have a place in medicine? Well, that has a very simple answer. I'll state it and then I'll let Anne-Marie say something. You know, it is because the reigning scientific paradigm, which dominates conventional medicine, is materialistic. And it does not recognize the non-physical, let alone the possibility that the non-physical can produce changes in physical systems. Yeah, I would agree. I also think that some of the measurements are difficult. I mean, one of the things that's happened in the last 20 years is that we're finding ways to measure energy. But Touch is so important, it's hard to measure. It's not a pill. You don't take it and get better immediately. Sometimes these things take time. And so that's something else that I find conventional medicine is not a fan of. It's not a fan of therapies that take nine months to a year. People are really looking for you know, the one and done, take it, and then you're better. Quite a few years ago, the University of Arizona did receive an NIH grant to look at the biofield of the body. And there's actually been a very large body of work on plants, on animals, on people. And I'm wondering, when you think about the research evidence that supports this, what's most compelling to you? The research evidence that's most compelling to me, that's threefold. One is the outcomes, so decrease of pain. It's evidence level one that energy healing modalities decrease pain. And that's new. That's sort of across the board with systematic analyses. That's been out for about 15 years. I was thrilled when I first read it. The other thing is that you can measure oxytocin. So this is, I think, one of the new areas that's happening that got started by Tiffany Fields in the University of Miami, that touch creates oxytocin. Oxytocin has a whole range of healing effects on the body. So we're starting to see that they're showing that things like Reiki and healing touch will increase oxytocin, which has a lot to do with placebo response and self-healing and social connection. So a lot of the mental health effects that are showing up now. So now we're seeing that energy healing helps with decreasing anxiety and increased mental health. The last thing that I think is going to be the next thing that's coming is the biophoton research. So one way that they measure the energy field is through something called gas discharge visualization, which is biophoton, looking at the biophoton emission. And biophoton emission in the body is mostly in the hands, the forehead, and at the heart center, interestingly. And if you can scan the biophoton of a human being, it'll be different. The biophoton emission will be different, disrupted in disease process. Also, giving somebody chemotherapy actually changes the biophoton emission. So I don't know that we know what a stronger or less emission of biophotons is, but I think that that's one way that we're going to start measuring energy healing and other therapies. But we can measure biophotons or detect them? Yeah. They're ultra weak. You have to do it like in a box. It's much easier to do in vitro, like on individual cells. That's how they're looking at chemotherapy with mouse cells, but you can do it by putting your hand on a plate in the dark that will measure the biophotons so they can put a body in the dark. So interesting. 
You mentioned that pain is especially influenced by energy healing. And then you also suggested that some of the mental health conditions, are there other things or are there places where you think energy medicine is particularly helpful or particularly indicated? So side effects from cancer treatment also has really good evidence. I think energy healing works for a lot of things, but you know, I've been traveling around the world getting energy healing from different traditions. For someone who doesn't hasn't tried energy healing, I usually start with pain and general well-being. So the oxytocin data shows that it increases our trust, it increases our ability uh, to make social connections, it helps with insulin resistance, uh, it helps with cortisol levels. So anything that has that component of it. So symptoms, really. I start with somebody who feels disconnected. I have an older person in my office that lives alone. That's a perfect person to send for energy healing because they're not getting the touch that most people get through having families. And I think that's part of what we're seeing as people age, that they get more disconnected. The other place that I think is interesting is with schizophrenia. So Mm. they're starting to show that with schizophrenia, there's an attachment disorder and people with schizophrenia make less endogenous oxytocin. And the drug companies are now doing spray oxytocin, but you can stimulate it with touch and not just touch of others, but touch of self. So there are certain afferent um, nerve fibers that respond to good quality touch. So often on the face. So I'll get people just to touch their own face and stimulate their own endogenous oxytocin. What about using this on hospitalized patients? It's being used in hospitalized patients. There's a place in Cincinnati that's been doing it for 20 years. And what they find is For post-operative pain, it's not that helpful, which makes sense because there's already a block in the energy field. But for post-operative anxiety, it has really good evidence and for pain patients. Now, talk more about this block in the energy field, because a lot of times when I hear people who practice energy medicine talking about it, they'll say something like there is a place where the energy is stuck or blocked. What does that really mean? And what can you do to unstick it? If you think of the body as a series of pipes, like a piping system for energy, when there's an injury, that pipe will get tighter or it'll constrict. Pain is blocked energy. So pain is a place in the body. Let's say the flow's going well, like with a pipe, and then all of a sudden it arm gets broken or something happens. That makes it so the flow can't go. And that's where there's the backup of the pain. So the pain is, if you have a block on the hip, the pain will often either be in the hip or the knee and the, or the foot. So more distal, farther away from where the block is. So the best way to open those blocks are, you know, if it's a broken arm to get the arm fixed, yet also to do things, movement or have someone run the energy with their hands. This is why yoga is so amazing. You know, yoga is all about moving energy in the body through movement. Energy healers will often place their hands, you know, above and below the block and slowly run it through. And I think acupuncture does this too. If you've had a good acupuncture session and they put the last needle in and you feel the energy whipping around through the body. So it takes time, but if somebody has chronic pain, it takes time. You have to move slowly, but it's just finding ways to move the energy through the place where it's constricted. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think about acupuncture treatment along the meridians and that concept of the energy moving along those meridians. Now, in Chinese medical philosophy, disease is conceived as being due to either deficiencies or excesses of energy in particular places. And acupuncture is often designed to either draw energy away from places where there's too much of it or to bring it to places that are deficient. But the balanced energy flow is seen as the core to health. 
You mentioned yoga, Anne-Marie, but of course, in Chinese medicine, there's also Tai Chi and Qigong. And one of the things I always thought was so interesting in my study of Chinese medicine is the concept that you're born with a certain amount of energy. You know, sometimes it's called a yoke sack of energy, and it's thought to kind of be depleted by around the age of 40. And what I like about these practices is that they are intended to increase the energy of the body to restore or bring back the energy of the body. What what do you think about that as an energy healer? Well, I love Qigong. And uh, Victoria knows this, that I, I use Qigong all the time to increase the flow and increase the vitality or the yolk sac that you're talking about. So after the age of about 40 or 45, I think people need a practice to restore their energy every day. And most people do it through exercise, but not everyone exercises. Even with Qigong, I mean, I like yoga because it's so universal, which is why I started there. But with Qigong, there's something called shaking the bones that I love to do. I find it helps helps me get better, you know, when I'm not feeling well or if I'm getting a cold coming on to move the energy through. How concerned are you about the effects of external energy fields on our biofield? Things like electromagnetic fields from various sources. You know, I'm not that concerned because I think that you can move it through. If you don't have a practice and you're sitting in one place all the time, then I think that's an issue. But that's the same as having stagnant energy from sitting down too long. You know, we're over-domesticated. So I'm not too worried about external fields unless they're very close. So, you know, I do use my speaker phone a lot on my phone or I don't sleep within two feet of my router, but I'm not as worried as people are about the electrical lines because it's electricity. It doesn't, it's not inherently negative. It's just, you know, proton and electron flow. So I'm not too worried about the body being able to handle it because the earth has an electrical field as well. I just keep people keeping it flowing. Yeah, I want to say I am a little bit worried about cell phones right next to people's heads, especially young children whose skulls are thinner and therefore the field penetrates deeper into the brain. I also have a concern if people are constantly placing their cell phone in their pocket. And so there's a constant uh, stimulation of an area of the body. And I think that these are things that we would be better off reducing. And so your example, Anne-Marie, of using the speakerphone more as opposed to having it right up next to your head, texting is better than talking on the phone, putting it on airplane mode so it's not constantly searching for a signal. I know when I hike, I like to have my cell phone, but I put it on airplane mode so that as it's further away, from the towers, it's not constantly trying to reboot and find a signal which causes elevated levels of signal. I like to be cautious and and recommend, you know, from the precautionary principle that we we be aware. Now, that's a little different, as you say, from having a, a cell tower, which is, of course, a bigger signal, but also much further away than from the body. Yeah. Well, and the other thing you taught me, Victoria, was to make sure that I always have a at least a pillow between my laptop and my lap. <laughs> and I've done that since you've shown me this, because you've been the one that's taught me this piece. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anne-Marie, I've met some very I think powerful energy healers who say that they had this ability from birth or acquired it as a result of some dramatic experience in childhood. What do you think about that? I mean, how much of this can be taught to people that how much potential do all of us have for doing it? I think everyone has the potential for doing it. Although like you, I think some people it's easier for them and they can actually run more energy. You can tell the moment somebody puts their hand on you, some people are running more energy yet. I think everyone can learn it. The ability to be, to know that one's doing it 
and doing it are not that related. So sometimes you'll hear somebody say, oh, that's ridiculous. And their hands like, you know, they put yeah. their hand on and you feel it, right? So, and I think it's definitely teachable. It depends on the state of consciousness that you're in. And then how, I think it depends on the breath and then the intention. We know that the hands actually light up. They turn on when you have, when people have positive intentions. So a mother with a child, or if you want to assist a friend, your hands capillary vasodilate and they capillary vasodilate in specific patternings. And so people don't notice it. But one of my favorite teachers when I was a resident used to think that this was all ridiculous and would roll his eyes and say, you don't believe in that, do you? But his hands would turn bright red when he was working <laughs> and they felt incredible. And I, I said to him once, well, what's going on with your hands? He's like, I don't know. That only happens when I'm working. And he ran more <laughs> energy than anybody I know. So I think being able to feel it and doing it are two different things. I definitely think it's teachable. I teach the medical students at the University of Arizona and I can teach them to scan a field, even the most skeptical, like you said, in about five minutes. We had a teacher, right, who came to the center in its early years, a woman named Rosalind Bruyere. And when she put her hands on you, it felt like something had like the head of a massage tool. It was rotating and vibratory, and there was nothing subtle about yeah, it. Yeah, not subtle. And some years later, I met one of her students who put her hands on me, and it felt exactly the same. <laughs> So, Victoria, are you aware of any flack that our center has gotten for including this subject matter in our teaching of physicians or medical no, students? No, actually, I have never had anyone bring it up. Um, and, you know, we're pretty public that this is part of our curriculum. For whatever reason, it doesn't seem to create the same critique as perhaps teaching homeopathy does. Right. And I have to say, in all the years of teaching people energy healing, physicians pick it up, physicians and nurses, healthcare practitioners pick it up the fastest because we're using it anyway and we don't know it. So someone who's got some medical training can feel it in 15 minutes. Well, I remember teaching our integrative medicine and residency teachers and them saying, oh my God, I can feel it. Do you have a problem with the knee? And the person was like, yeah, pain in my knee, you can feel it. So I call it an experiential art that you have to feel it before you really buy into it. But once you do, it's easy. Anne-Marie, our listeners are going to want to know something, which is how do you find a good energy healer? It's mm, a good question. I would pick somebody who's been doing it for more than three years. And if you can find somebody who's been doing it for more than 10, I would go for that because there is a art to learning how to get better. And there's a variety of training programs. You know, I had one client that I was teaching who got Reiki certified over the internet from somebody in England, right? So that's kind of the least amount of training possible. So I would get somebody who's been doing it for a while and then have them put their hands on you. You'll know right away. It's really a sense of touch. Ask someone you know, if you know any friends that are getting energy healers, sometimes that's a good way to do it. But you can look up, I love healing touch. I love Reiki. There's probably a hundred ways of getting energy healing done because every month or two, a new technique has popped up. It's really the same principles. They just get packaged a little differently and taught differently. So I would ask around or I would find a healing touch practitioner. That's how I would get started. And then see how you feel on the table. See if you can feel more relaxed. And if you if you do, then I would go with that. I do remember you telling a story one time about, I'm just going to say a bad experience you had with an energy healer. Can you maybe oh, yeah. take away some of the lessons from that? Because of course, if you have a bad experience, it would probably be better not to go back to that person. Yeah. Thank you, Victoria. So when you lay down on a table or if you're sitting up, if it's a form where you sit up, 
you really go into a bit of a trance because of all of the exchange of energy and then also the oxytocin. So you're very susceptible in that moment. So I stay away from healers that make suggestions while I'm getting the healing that are negative. So I had a woman one time tell me that I had some of the tender points of fibromyalgia while I was in a trance state. And I, you know, I worry about that the same way medicine can negatively hex people or use the nocebo effect. I think healers do that. We have another healer in town I really like, but I remember him working on my daughter once and telling her that the headgear from her braces was going to cause headaches. And I was like, why would you tell her that? Why would you set her up for a negative outcome? So I'm very careful about the words people are using. And I often will just stay quiet through the whole session. I think that's important. Thank you for bringing it up. I'm wondering whether you perceive as energy healing some of the things you teach, like everybody loves when you lead heart center meditation. And for our listeners, you can find that on YouTube. It's such a beautiful practice. Would you consider that an energy practice? Yeah, I would consider it an energy practice because you're generating energy at the heart chakra. I would also consider it a form of guided imagery. So, you know, you're leading yourself into a trance state, you're shifting the energy into the heart center, and it certainly changes the quality of energy coming off the hands. Healing touch uses it as well. They center at the heart before they do the energy healing session. Have you had unusual experiences with healers that have made you wary or most of the time are they good experiences? Well, I want to say mostly good experiences, but I absolutely have been hexed. And in the way that you mentioned, you know, the suggestion of a negative outcome, I sort of hear that and I think, I wonder why you're saying that. Like, why would you say that? And so I'm, I think I'm sensitive enough to it that I can kind of quickly put it to rest. Depending on my relationship with the person, I may say, Oh, no, that's not going to happen to me. You know, or I might just file it and go, I don't think I want to see this person. How about dramatic results that you've seen? Well, I can give you one. Victoria mentioned Rosalind Briere, and one time when she came in to teach, I had had a lingering sore throat for three weeks. It was really bad, and it didn't respond to anything that I was doing. So I mentioned to her, this was at the end of the day, that I had this sore throat, and she said, lie down here on the table. She put her hands on my neck, and instantly, as Victoria said, I felt it felt like motors, very non-subtle vibrations. And after a few minutes, I felt these vibrations flowing through my whole body down to my feet. And more interesting, when she took her hands off, I continued to feel that. And I said that to her, and she said, some very sensitive people will feel this for a few days after she does this. I woke up the next morning, the sore throat was gone. So now that could have been coincidence. I have no idea. But if I had something like that, I would go try to find somebody like her. It was very impressive. I sometimes say I like really subtle work or really deep work. Uh -huh. So I like really deep tissue massage where someone just yeah. gets in there and works me hard. But I also find either off the body or incredibly light touch on the body. For example, for a while when I had back pain, I went to someone who did network chiropractic, which is a very subtle, it's nothing like the high velocity thrust of the typical chiropractor. And I absolutely found that beneficial and it gave me long relief. I'll tell you one other. I was at a conference center, I was to give a lecture and I had not had any sleep the night before. I was exhausted. There was a woman who was a practitioner of Jinshin Jitsu, which is one of these systems, and she said she'd work on me. So I lay down on the table. I was paying no attention to her. It was like very light touch with two 
fingers. And I was talking to several people who were sitting by the table. So I really completely ignored what she was doing. And when she finished, I got up and I suddenly was aware I wasn't tired. And I was able to give my lecture afterwards. I really needed to sleep, but it was quite remarkable. And I had paid no attention to it. Yeah, I want to give one more example. When I was a fellow, we had a Tai Chi teacher named Wen Zi. He was in his 80s, and he was a Tai Chi master. He also was a very slight man, like maybe five foot two inches tall, I mean, perhaps 100 pounds. And he would say to some of the other fellows in the class, some of the men, stand as strong as you can in your position and don't let me push you over. And like with one little finger, he could push them over. I'm talking about men who are six feet, three inches tall, more than 200 pounds. And then he'd say, try to push me. And he would concentrate his energy in whatever way, I don't fully understand, whatever way he did it, and no one could push him over. So that's another interesting thing to witness. Yeah. You know, as you're talking about all these stories, you know, I've seen both dramatic healings and small healings. But the other thing I've done with people is I, I put them on the table and then I have the group touch with anxiety or fear and with casual and then with compassionate touch or, or helpful touch or whatever you want to call it. And the anxiety is transferred too. And people on the table will say, oh my God, I feel terrible. So even if somebody doesn't learn energy healing, it's so important what intention or how we're touching somebody. Because if we use what I like to call second year medical student touch, where you know, you're know you terrified, <laughs> first day nursing school touch, that goes into the patient, that goes into the other person. So I've become more mindful of how I touch everything because if it can create the oxytocin, there's no data that it creates something else, but we know that it can actually transmit the feeling, the, the affective part of the touch. So even just walking around, you know the difference between somebody who puts their hand on you that feels good and somebody who's trying to get you to stop crying or whatever. <laughs> so that's even for our listeners, even if you don't want to learn energy healing, you can do this just by shifting the quality of your own touch and start to have an impact. Your pets will tell you how you're touching them for sure. We should say release oxytocin, not create it. Oxytocin is produced by the pituitary gland. It's one of our hormones. Various things can trigger the release of it, but it's there. Amory, you have been such a shining example of a highly trained, scientific, evidence-based, Western and integrative physician, and a real leader in helping people to learn this discipline of energy medicine. So I just want to say hats off to you. And we're so thrilled to have you on the podcast. And of course, we're thrilled to have you as the fellowship director for the University of Arizona, Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Thank yes, you. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. And thank you for including energy medicine in the yeah. definition of integrative medicine. You can imagine how thrilled I was when I found you. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions. For Andy, myself, or for our guests, you can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, 
azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. When you go to our website, you can see our upcoming guests, and we will try to answer some of your questions on our program. 